Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? Minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. We have liftoff of Falcon 9. Falcon 9 is clear to tower. Outer space. It's an unforgiving place to do business. Which is why, historically, it has been solely the province of governments. It's only sovereign nations who could really afford to foot the bill for costly missions to the great beyond and to be able to drape them in patriotism that's required to justify the very real risks that come along with it. Well, that is no longer the case. NASA shut its space shuttle program six years ago because it was just simply too risky, too expensive. But that left the door wide open for a clutch of billionaires like Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson and Elon Musk, who have all taken to the space business, building spaceships for all types of different reasons, whether it's space tourism or satellite launches, or in the case of Musk's SpaceX, supply runs to the International Space Station. One name you probably have not heard amid that starry constellation of tycoons is Will Marshall who is today's guest on Danny in the Valley. His company, Planet, has taken a very Silicon Valley approach to space. The company operates out of a warehouse across the street from a secondhand clothing store in San Francisco, and it churns out super powerful and very cheap satellites like Krispy Kreme does donuts. It's only seven years old, but it's already worth well over a billion dollars. And as of this recording, Planet had 156 satellites in orbit, which are hurtling around Earth, furiously snapping away pictures, enough of them to render a detailed image of what is happening on our chaotic little planet every day. Roughly speaking, it's the world's largest satellite constellation ever. The largest constellations before that were about 70 satellites, uh, I guess, the Iridium constellation. It's not like orders of magnitude more, but it's, it's a fairly large constellation, certainly the world record. It's something that has never been done before, and Will has graciously sat down to talk about why he's doing it and why we should care. Enjoy. So typically there was 100 satellites launching per year, and now in the last, just the last year and a bit, we've launched more than 100 ourselves. So we've launched roughly the same amount as everyone else put together. So we've sort of doubled the launch rate of the world, just this little startup. Now, 
let me put some caveat on that, that our satellites are very small, and so they're much easier to build. It's like a shoebox They're about the size of a shoebox. And so by mass, we haven't put the most mass in orbit. In fact, our satellites would only take up a tiny fraction of one rocket. What's the point? Why are you doing this? The point is very simple. We want to help us to take care of the Earth, help people to improve their quality of life, and help us to protect other life on this Earth. Let me give you some examples. Deforestation is a classic example. So satellite imagery to date has been taken of the Earth every few years. The satellite imagery layers on online maps, they're typically three to five years old. By imaging the entire Earth every day, which is what we can do with our 156 satellites, we can track deforestation. So that's the whole world every day? Yeah. With 156 satellites, we can image the entire landmass of the globe every day. By imaging every day, we can track changes. And the broadest goal is to help us to take care of our beautiful spaceship Earth. An example of that is deforestation. Instead of waking up at the end of the three or five years and you take a new image and there's a bloody great hole in the Amazon, instead, by imaging every day, we can say, oh, there's some deforestation happening right there, right now. And then that can be stopped. You can see the, the small hole getting bigger and bigger and Absolutely. bigger. Absolutely. We can see each tree. And in fact, in particular, for example... Here, we're working with the Brazilian government to try and stop deforestation in the Amazon uh, with our satellite imagery. That's just one of a myriad of examples, but it gives you a sense of why timely data can help people to make smarter decisions to help us take care of the Earth. So could you talk about the technology, though, because you're talking about a satellite that's roughly the size of a shoebox or a loaf of bread or what have you, but um, yes. that doesn't sound like it would be able to do much. Well, that might be your initial impression that's true. We have stuffed an amazing array of technology into this little shoebox size satellite. In fact, if you take them apart, they look inside much more like a smartphone would, i.e. stuffed to the gunnels with the latest sensors and electronics and hard drives and processors and radios and other technology that enable us to put a lot more bang for the buck, if you like, inside these devices. So even though they're very small, they have very, very significant capability. They are So it's not a fleet of iPhones hurtling around the Earth? No, it is not. Uh, in fact, they're much more complicated than that. And in addition, they are carrying exquisite telescopes and camera systems that enable them to take exquisite imagery of the ground, as well as radio systems to transmit that down. And we have to have ground stations all around the world to receive that data. So it's a very complicated mission that we've undertaken. I say to our team here, we've undertaken a minor Apollo project in this little lab in San Francisco. And I don't say those words lightly. It is a massive systems engineering project to put up 156 satellites and to have all the ground stations and all the mission control architecture. And at NASA, we would have dozens or hundreds of people for doing round-the-clock operations for each one satellite we would have in space. And here we are operating 150, and we have three operators. Just so you understand. Three operators. Three. Mm-hmm. But they're just being pulled around the planet at whatever 20 right, miles Right, but um, what we've really done is automated all the mission right. control software so that satellites know automatically when to take pictures, when to downlink them to the ground station and point there, and when to turn off because of this or that, or what have you. You worked for NASA before you did this. True. Correct. Could you just give me a comparison just so I can get wrap my head around what these can do relative to, say, I don't know, a big satellite from 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I don't know, the Hubble telescope, something like that where we can kind of just 
that would kind of illustrate just how much the technology has come on. Absolutely. Uh, well, Hubble Space Telescope is a great one to look at. In fact, is largely a spy satellite turned upside down to look out, that is, rather than look down. It's a much bigger satellite. It's the size of a bus. It weighs many tons. A um, London bus or a, an American bus? Um, I would say it's more like a, a, a single-decker bus, not a double-decker bus in this case. It probably weighs about six tons. I have to look it up. And it costs about $6 billion. $6 billion, that's a lot, you know. Our satellites cost orders of magnitude less than that. Quite a lot of orders of magnitude. I'm not going to like talk about Like the cost of a smartphone? No, not that that low because i mean we still have to get them into space and and that's expensive and various other things but it's certainly not anything like billions of dollars in terms of the capability what can i mean it's a good point on the hubble space telescope is a 2.4 meter mirror and if you pointed that telescope down you would have a much better resolution on the ground than we can get with this 90 millimeter mirror so you know less than 10 centimeter about 24 times smaller in diameter so yes of course we can't see the same level of granularity on the ground as a hubble space telescope could if it was pointed down on the other hand what hubble space telescope would see is a tiny area of the land whereas we with our imagery can scan the entire planet both because we're looking at a slightly bigger area, because we're not looking through a thin straw, if you like, and we've got 156 of them. And the real mission here is to see the large-scale changes. We can see an individual tree, and we can see a building, and we can see a road, and we can see as those things change. How big are the pixels? They're about three meters on the side. So it's about... 10 feet at this yeah. 10 square mm-hmm. feet roughly. Yeah. So you can just about see a vehicle or a building, but you can't read a number plate. You can't see a person because we don't want to get into personal privacy issues. Well, that was going to be my question. If you have this kind of, well, many eyes in the sky taking pictures every day, are there any privacy implications or no? Broadly speaking, our technology is bent towards non, not touching personal privacy. As I said, we can't see a person. You can't identify someone from space. Even the Hubble Space Telescope, if it turned around, it wouldn't be able to say, oh, this is Will here sitting in his back garden. No way. He might just be able to see as a person. But So you're 500 miles away and you have something the size of a shoebox and it can right. see my house right. every, every day. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. How much of that is due to the smartphone and just the miniaturization of Well, everything? it's definitely... What is happening here is a bit of a space renaissance. I call it space 2.0. The development is a lot on the back of the miniaturization of technology that has happened. We have leveraged that technology to put into our satellites, and that's why they're so much smaller, but yet can do a lot of great things. And you started this in 2010? Actually formed the company in 2010, but we only really got going in early 2012. So you've been doing this effort seriously about, about five years. And I think I read somewhere that you built your first in your garage. garage. Yes. How, how's that work? How do you build a satellite <laughs> <in the> garage? <laughs> we did start building them in our garage, yes. And, well, we just cleaned it out and we'd sweep out the leaves and start building satellites. Just, <laughs> I don't know what else As you do, just say. like fixing the lawnmower. At NASA, there was many processes that you'd have to go through, including putting them in clean rooms and doing all these tests and stuff. And we got rid of a lot of those processes. We actually just said, I think we can build it without that, and it would still work. And indeed, those satellites have gone up, and they have worked. Who are the customers? Who buys this stuff, and what do they use the information for? Because obviously, this isn't a charity. 
we are a for-profit organization, although we also have a non-profit side-by-side, by the way. Because well, um, I saw on your website, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of open source. You're just putting out all Well, this some thing. of our data we open source under a Creative Commons license. Yes, all, this, all the data of California is a way of getting people to play with the data and use it and figure out what it's useful for. But you asked about the markets. The main markets are that we have started to sell data in to date have been in agriculture and governments and consumer mapping. So in agriculture, what people use it for is to help improve crop yields. So we can tell from orbit how well a crop is doing because we have some spectral bands, in particular this near-infrared band, and chlorophyll, the main molecule by which you recognize growth of biomaterial, is sews up like a sore thumb in this spectral band. And so we can actually tell biomass and with some basic calibration, crop yield on a pixel-by-pixel basis around the world every day. So then we can help a farmer determine when to plant, what to plant, when to add water, when to add fertilizer, and so help them to improve crop yield. And that applies both in the developed world and the developing world. So you could think of that as a profitable enterprise in Europe and America and Japan or whatever, and, and maybe we could do it as more philanthropic enterprise with the UN and the World Health Organization in sub-Saharan Africa, say. Governments use our data for lots of different things, ranging from intelligence to tracking deforestation. I mentioned the Brazilian government example is doing that. Another one is doing disaster response. And then the third area is consumer mapping. And that's where we work with clients like Google who have consumer mapping layers, satellite layers on their maps, and they want them to be more up-to-date. What do you mean consumer mapping? I mean, when you go on Google Maps and you click on the satellite layer, that satellite layer is three to five years old typically, but they would like it to be more up-to-date so that consumers go online and say, oh, you know, right now they go on and their house is three years, was three years ago, and we're like, well, yeah, we made an extension, or that's not my car, that was the previous owner's car. I've always wondered what the business case for that is, because it's, I mean, I look at Google Earth and it's cool, and then I go on and about my day and never use it again. What is the business case there? Well, I think you have to ask Google that question. Um, <laughs> but for us, from our standpoint, they are interested in having the latest satellite imagery on that, those maps. It's kind of like bringing the globe to life as opposed to a still photograph. This is almost kind of like a stop-action movie where you see floods and fires and earthquakes Absolutely. and wars, yeah. etc. I think that's a great way of thinking about it. In fact, when the Apollo 17 mission took the first full-frame image of the Earth, which is one of the most widely circulated images of all time, that really led to a phase change in human consciousness. They were like, suddenly people were around the planet. Of course, we knew we were living on a planet, but suddenly we saw it in the vastness of space with the thin atmosphere around it. We went, oh my God, we're really on this fragile little planet. And that led to the birth of the Green Movement. Now, here we are, 40 years later or so, 50 years later, I guess, and we're imaging the entire Earth on a more regular basis. Now, with that, instead of just being aware that the planet is fragile, we can turn it into action. So instead of being aware that there's some deforestation happening, we can actually help people to stop that deforestation. And instead of being just aware that a flooding happened, you can help the disaster response relief efforts to help those people. We are 7 billion astronauts on a planet, on the spaceship Earth, as Buckminster Fuller coined, or at least popularized the phrase, and we're hurtling around the sun, and 
on that spaceship, we need timely data if we're to take care of it. And I would guess part of that also is, I mean, if I was working at a hedge fund, a commodities hedge fund, say, mm -hmm. and I was betting on soybeans or mm -hmm. maize or what have you, your information could be quite useful, no? Yeah. Do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. In fact, uh, we do have some clients in that area that are interested in betting on markets, hedge funds, with our data that enables them to better predict those markets. And yeah, so... There's many different, it's agriculture, you know, you could also imagine tracking the output from all the world's open air copper mines, or the ships into and out of all the world's ports, or what have you, and that could all be relevant to certain trading. And so there are financial traders that are interested in our data, yeah. That's another commercial avenue. A few months ago, I think it was earlier this year, you bought Google's satellite business. That's true. Which yes. they had bought, which was previously Skybox, they spent whatever, yeah. $500 million to buy it. And then uh -huh. a year later, sold it to you. Two right? years later, yeah, exactly. Yes, we bought Google's satellite arm, which was Skybox, as you say, uh, now uh, renamed Terabella. And so with that, we inherited a fleet of high-resolution satellites. Uh, and these are bigger? Bigger satellites. They're about the size of a, a mini fridge. They have bigger telescopes so that they can take slightly better resolution imagery of the ground. And with those, we can see things that are... The pixel size, instead of being 3 meters across, is 0.7 meters across. So now we can see slightly smaller things. That's better for certain markets like the consumer mapping market we were just talking about, like Google's satellite imagery layer. They're more interested in that sort of resolution data because that's what consumers of satellite imagery on Google Maps want to see. Is the hardest part of the business still getting the satellites to space? Because you know, rockets blow up all the time. I think you guys lost some satellites mm -hmm. last year on a SpaceX rocket that blew up. Yeah. Is that getting better? Because there's a whole separate boom in private space yeah. rockets. That's true. There's only really one company that succeeded in private space, that's SpaceX. But there, there are others that are trying. But it hasn't really changed the price point very much, nor the risk profile. So things have, from our standpoint as purchasers of rockets and the users of that. Rocket space, effectively. Rocket right. space. That hasn't changed very much. In fact, the prices have stayed flat for the last sort of 30 or 40 years. Now, ultimately, if SpaceX succeeds in doing reusable rockets on a regular basis, that cost could come down a little bit. Not much, maybe a factor of two. And that would be great. But I think the main innovation is putting more capability in every kilogram that we put up. Capability per kilogram, if you like, has changed by orders of magnitude. Instead of having to put up a six-ton satellite, we can put up a six-kilogram satellite and do the same thing. That is where things have changed vastly. Even if the launch costs come as best down as we can predict, like 2x. Yeah, it's only a 2x. <laughs> and how often do you have to send up satellites to keep... Because this is low Earth orbit, correct? Which mm. is roughly 500 miles? 500 kilometers. 500 about kilometers. 500 kilometers, yeah. And they circle around the earth at something like 20,000 miles an hour I yeah think. eight kilometers a second sorry I, yeah. I don't use silly units so yeah <laughs> um, fair enough fair um, enough <laughs> but they don't stay up there forever right no they, that's right they they come down because of atmospheric decay so the satellites we launch that typically launch that stay up there for three years or so and then we replenish them yeah uh, but we actually replenish much more regularly than that because we want to constantly put up a, the latest generation of satellites so in fact, over the last 
three or four years we've been starting to launch satellites, we've launched roughly every three months into space. We've had 15 different launches, launching different generations of our satellites. So it's kind of like using the iPhone Absolutely. Model. Who it's wants kind a three-year-old iPhone, <laughs> iPhone in their pocket? Well, no one. And we call it strapping space to Moore's Law. We want to keep them up to date with the latest technology. And space sort of divorced Moore's Law back in the 70s. They separated. Moore's Law, the, the law that computing power doubles every... 18 months, exactly. 18 months. And in many ways, the space industry invented Moore's Law because the microprocessor was developed for the Apollo project to stuff because, really? because computers wouldn't fit into the Apollo capsule and or the Saturn V rocket. And so, yes, a lot of those developments were pushed by, and, and many other things, the developments of solar arrays and, and CCDs and many of these things. And Velcro, right? And Velcro, right. Uh, a lot of these things, if not started by aerospace, were really pushed by them, by aerospace. But the aerospace industry got very used to developing its own sensors. But now the dominant R&D dollars aren't in NASA. They're in Apple and Microsoft and Samsung and Google and all these companies. And they're developing them for consumer electronics. And what we've learned to do at Planet is learning to follow, if you like, is to learn to use that technology and stuff that into our, tech, into our satellites rather than trying to do it all ourselves and build our own processes and our own sensors like the aerospace industry was doing and then bring, if you like, aerospace back to Moore's law. Is space trash or space rubbish, space debris an issue? I, yes. I watched a very um, disturbing video from the European Space Agency, mm-hmm. which predicted this kind of chain of yes. collisions and all of a yes. sudden you have chips of paint and screws and little bits and pieces that if they come in contact with anything, they just destroy it because they're traveling so fast. Absolutely. Space debris is a problem. What you're referring to as the runaway cascade, which is so known as the Kessler syndrome, is underway in certain orbit altitudes, the higher orbit altitudes, like above 800 kilometers. This has already started to take into effect. The amount of objects up there, the density of objects, has gone beyond this critical stage where the number of times they collide creates more pieces of debris than the number of pieces that come down due to atmospheric decay. That's a real problem. We have a runaway cascade of debris in low Earth orbit. However, whilst we need to tackle that, it doesn't stop us launching these satellites. And why? Because we are putting these satellites in much lower orbits away from that problem so that they're self-cleaning and not exacerbating that problem. What does self-cleaning mean? It means that we put them in a much lower orbit where they decay in three years. And they just fall out of the sky. They get out of the way. Yep, they fall out of the sky, they burn up in the top of the atmosphere. They can't cause this long-lived debris problem. Now, so the satellite's falling into the sky is, is pollution of a kind, but if you think about the size of our satellites and how much that is, it's extremely little. So the yes, it's a problem. We need to deal with it. The space agencies, governments need to deal with it. But the, the people and folks and efforts like Planet aren't, creating that problem in it or right. exacerbating it. Yeah, because I think their prediction was that there's something like 12,000 satellites that yeah. are kind of on the launch It's only pad, problematic so if those satellites go up into higher orbits. If they are in 800 to 1,200 kilometers of orbits, where some of the COM satellite plans are for, firstly, they have to have propulsion to get out of the way. But even, just, even if they have propulsion, just the sheer numbers do start to become a problem. But let me just say one more thing. The dominant problem here is big objects 
in space that when they, when there's real collisions between big objects. What's big? Like a big satellite, a five-ton satellite, or an upper stage of a rocket that's still orbiting that may be a, a ton or two. And those things cause thousands of pieces of debris when they collide. And secondly, governments occasionally purposefully fire a missile to blow up one of their satellites. We've seen this quite recently with the Chinese blowing up a satellite and the U.S. blowing up one of their satellites. Why would you do that? This is a beating the chest episode of trying to show each other that they can blow each other's satellites up. Yes, you might think this is like three euros in the playground and you'll be right on the money with that. So the Chinese one was particularly problematic because it was at very high altitude. But even the U.S. one caused some significant problems. In any case, all the time there's countries blowing up satellites that cause thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces of debris. All of the creation of satellites that are maneuverable and going to get out of the way are not the problem. So the first onus of this problem is on the part of the government. Wow, what a mess. Quite. (laughs) Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. How did you end up here? You obviously don't have an American accent. That is true. I got on a plane. <laughs> uh, when did so you get on a plane? <laughs> no, um, that's fine. Halfway through my PhD, one of my two supervisors... I you were at Oxford. I uh, was, yes. And one of my two supervisors moved over to UC Santa Barbara, to the physics department there. And I followed him and carried on some research there. And then... I went to UC Santa Barbara. Oh, you did? Go oh. Gauchos. I don't know what gauchos are. That's the... You don't know what the gaucho... Oh. That's the... Uh, that's the mascot for okay, the... Okay, okay. You weren't, you weren't I was partaking. stuck in a physics lab all the time. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. I failed to take into account the uh, local right. uh, traditions. <laughs> sorry. No, I completely... I'm useless like that. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, so then I, I started meeting some people that... In particular, I met my, the person who became my boss, Pete Warden, who became the director of the NASA Ames Research Center, and invited Robbie 
and myself, my, my co-founder here, Robbie, and myself to come and work for him and build more satellites. And that's for NASA. At NASA, yeah. And that's but those we, are you're making big satellites. Smaller than NASA's typical ones and lower cost, but yes, still big by our standards here at Planet. Because that's the interesting thing, it seems to me, is space is so government. It's such a kind of a big government undertaking every single one of these things. And it seems here we're in a warehouse, you have tiny little satellites. It's, it's kind of, it seemed like it was ripe for being shaken up. Absolutely. It was definitely ripe for disruption. The others that left NASA with us recognized that disruption and decided to, to tap into it. In particular, considering how we thought we could help the world and take care of the spaceship Earth with this imaging mission and that's what was and that was the original mission yeah why imaging of all the things that a satellite can do well it's very simple we looked at all the world's problems a good executive summary is the the sustainable development goals that the un has ending poverty feeding everyone getting everyone access to water stopping deforestation stopping ocean overfishing And if you look down that list of goals, we thought that Earth imaging, like more regular imaging of the Earth, could help with a lot of those. We could help improve agricultural yields and then help feed people. We could help monitor the reservoir levels of all the reservoirs around the world and help get people access to clean water. We could help disaster response, and that's a big problem for the most needy people in the world is is responding to disasters. They get caught up in that in a disproportionate way. And so when you look down that list, we're like, my God, daily imaging of the planet, we could significantly help a lot of these goals at a global level, which is an unusual thing to say for a project. I mean, it's not often you come across a project where you feel like you could help half the world's challenges in a demonstrable way. For us, that was like, okay, we've got to do this. (laughs) And we could see that we could make money at the same time by selling the data to certain clients, and then we were like, okay, this is a no-brainer. Let's start as a company, let's leave NASA because we could do it a little bit faster outside NASA, and we did. This is probably a stupid question, but does the profusion of cheap drones, does that hurt what you're trying to do at all? Because you can, you know, say, for example, the crop example. Mm-hmm. Any farmer now can have, yeah. can buy a pretty cheap drone that yeah. can, he can send Absolutely. out and perform a lot of those same tasks. That's true, but no. In, in fact, I see drones and satellites as being very complementary for something like the example you just gave of a farmer getting a drone that doesn't really make sense because we can do it much much lower cost than him or her getting that drone from satellites because the satellites are going at eight kilometers a second as we discussed earlier and their coverage is just vast compared with a drone and so the cost per picture of an area of a field is a lot less however there are other applications where drones i think are going to prevail in particular, where you need higher resolution. We're 500 kilometers away. If you, for example, want to monitor a building site and monitor it brick by brick, well, we're not going to see those bricks from space, so we obviously can't do that, but a drone could do that. It's more expensive to take that, but uh, on a unit area basis, but the satellites can't do it, so a drone would be better able to do it. So drones can't do the worldwide coverage or the high cadence coverage of the planet, but they can do higher resolution, and that's the complementary sort of differences. And just throwing things forward five to ten years, do you have a, a vision for where all of this can go? Because we, now we have satellite companies that are talking about being, you know, internet coverage to mm-hmm. the middle of nowhere in Africa, and yep. you're going to be imaging the planet every day. And 
five to ten years from now, where does this, what will we be able to do then with this type of technology that we can't do now? I think that actually earth imaging and communications are the biggest applications. And there's not any other really big ones to speak of that people have thought of yet, at least not that I have come across. Nuances to both of those things, to those areas, you could go into radar satellites, you could go into different kinds of communication satellites. You could do the the Internet of Things things that communicates to lots of little devices around the planet and gets their little bits of data. Or you could do backhaul, sending huge amounts of data between big data centers. And those are different kinds of communication emissions. But in principle, you could have satellite fleets that do GPS. You could in principle have satellite, and then maybe they could make them better in downtown city areas where, for example, GPS doesn't work very well because... Of the nature of that constellation. Well, self-driving it, cars, for example. Yeah, yeah. And there are things where you could imagine that make a difference, but not much. The comms and earth imaging are the main ones for now. And did you say, did you always think you were going to start a company? Or did you no. say, did you start out just... Uh, I have no interest in forming a company. I just did so accidentally. Oh, it's, there's what, 200 people here? Uh, yeah. It's about 400. 400. over 400 now, 450, isn't it? 450 people. Yeah, so I'm not particularly interested in business. I'm interested in how we can help the world. And business is a mechanism of doing that. And you've raised something like $180 million in venture capital, something like that. Yeah. I think your planet is supposedly a unicorn. Supposedly. Are you going to go public, do you think? Go out on the stock market? I certainly think that we should be a strong standalone company. I care about ensuring that we get this data to the people that need it. And the best way to do that is to stay independent. So what does that mean? So I think the natural path is uh, to become a public company. Who's your biggest investor, can you say? Who's our biggest investor? It depends if you buy the amount of investment or the amount of shares. Who owns, the, who owns the most of you? The big ones are Steve Jervetson, DFJ, and Yuri Milner and the International Finance Corporation, part of the World Bank Group, and Data Collective who respectively led our sort of A, B, and C rounds. And so where are you from in Britain? Kent, just south of London. Kent. And when you were a kid in Kent, did you Mm -hmm. think you were going to go off and do something that would be a first in human history? I didn't think about it like that, but I was certainly interested in space. Um, So I was really interested in astronomy. I read space fact books and astronomy fact books, and I got interested in astronomy when I was very young, like six or seven, and... uh, when I was 15 or 16, I started building a telescope because I couldn't afford to buy one and built one. And then, you know, I got even more interested in it. So it's, it's interesting that now we're still building telescopes, but just that are up there looking down rather than down here looking up. Right, right. <clears throat> but they're similar kind of telescopes, actually. And the fundamentals aren't so different than when I was 16. So 20 years on, I'm still doing the same bloody thing, basically. Although, actually, if I go into the lab, I get kicked out these days because I... You know, I might break things, which I probably would. It's a fair, fair risk. Well, thank you very much for taking the time. I appreciate it. No worries at all. And that is all. A big thank you to Will. It's a fascinating story. And please, if you'd like to hear more of them, go to iTunes. Give a rating and review. It helps a great deal to keep the podcast high in the rotation and make it easier for people to find you can, of course, find Danny in the Valley not only in Apple Podcasts, but Google Play, Stitcher, where it is, wherever it is you get your podcasts. You can also read me every week in the Sunday Times. 
And please, just take a couple minutes, give a quick review on iTunes. It is a huge help. And I will talk to you next week. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.